Cool. Uh, please uh, pray with me. Start just by going to the Lord. Father, we, uh, we praise you and we thank you that you could love uh, people like us. Um, Lord, I know some, some of us feel like um, we've heard that a lot, maybe all our lives, but it still feels really hard to believe that you love someone like us and that you accept um, someone like us and that you delight in someone like us. Lord, I think about your word to us in Zephaniah where you say that your love for us, uh, in your love for us, you sing over your children songs of love that you delight over your children. And Lord, I pray as we come here tonight, as we're here tonight, that you would let that good news uh, just abound in this place, abound in our hearts. I pray that you would grip us by it. I pray that you would change us by it. Um, Lord, we confess to you that we are a loveless people. Um, We come tonight as those who have mostly, if not only, loved ourselves in our sinfulness and in our selfishness. And yet, Lord, you are a God who stands ready to forgive as we confess that to you. That you stand um, to accept us and welcome us with open arms and with eyes of joy and with songs of love. And so, Lord, I pray that as we just continue this series in Exodus, that you would show us your glory. Uh, You have revealed it to us in your word and in your son, Jesus, and his work on our behalf and his life, death, and resurrection. So, Lord, I pray that you would root us in that love tonight, ground us in that love tonight, make it fresh. I pray for myself that you would make it fresh to my heart and that you would open my eyes and open my ears to the great love that you have for your people. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we're working our way in a series uh, through the book of Exodus, and we're calling it The Gospel According to Exodus uh, Story, The Gospel According to Exodus. Last week, if you were here, we talked about how part of why we're doing this is the Exodus story is our story. Uh, Another way to say that is the Exodus story really is the gospel in short story form. The the four basic movements of that story are about slavery, which we're going to talk about tonight, that we are slaves to sin, and then about a rescue that we desperately need. And then about journeying with God through the wilderness. And then lastly, about how he's taking us and preparing a place called the promised land for us. And that's our story. If you belong to Jesus, that's you. That's me. That that's what he's doing in your life. He's setting you free. He is your rescuer and your deliverer. He is walking with you through times of wilderness and trial and temptation. And he promises to take you to be with him. But tonight we're looking at that idea of slavery. Um, And so to do that, we're going to look at Exodus 1. Verses 1 to 14. Send your hand out. Exodus 1, 1 to 14, if you want to follow along. Here's how it goes. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died, and all his brothers... In all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. 
Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Um, that's what we're talking about tonight. The part of the, this part of your story, what I want to kind of approach tonight is to say, the first part of understanding your story, whether you know it or not, is to consider this idea of slavery. Let me unpack this for a second. There's a, a scene in one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption. And if you remember this, if you know the movie at all, it's where Red and Andy are processing and they're talking about, the, about Brooks, who has just gotten freed from prison. But in his, he's been in, Brooks had been in prison most of his life. He didn't know what to do and he ends up killing himself. And Red and Andy are processing it and Red says to Andy this. He said, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. They send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take, the part that counts anyway. What I love about this is I think he's offering a psychology that is, is, is rooted in Exodus 1. And here's what I mean by that. Exodus opens with the people of God in bondage. They're enslaved. And they're not surrounded by the walls of a prison, but they are surrounded by a ruthless ruler and a ruthless people who are having their way with them. And you can imagine uh, Morgan Freeman in Israel, if you will, which would be incredible to meet. And you can imagine him saying as they're enslaved, and he, you, can imagine, you can imagine him saying something similar to Red. Of, of life, uh, first you hate it, then you get used to it, then you come to depend on it. And here's what I mean by that. So Jesus, in a really fascinating way, when he's <clears throat> talking and arguing with the Pharisees, and they hate his message. They hate the way he eats with sinners. They hate the way that he moves toward the marginalized and the oppressed. And Jesus, as they're arguing with them, he takes them back to the Exodus story. And he says, here's what you've missed. First, he says, you've searched the scriptures and you've missed me. But then he says, you've forgotten your slavery. And Jesus says this, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And here's what we're going to talk about tonight, is that you and I have never been physically enslaved. But every one of us here knows what it means, whether we know it or not, has experienced this idea of slavery to sin. A slavery and a bondage to a sinful flesh in us that we can't free ourselves from, that we need someone to come and free us from. Uh, here's the way Bob Dylan said it like this, this idea of we're all slaves in this way, spiritually speaking. Bob Dylan said it like this. He said, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Our Bob Dylan, Kendrick Lamar, said it like this. He said, Holly Berry or Hallelujah? Pick your poison. Tell me what it's going to do. Man, that'll preach all day long. Holly Berry or Hallelujah? That we all serve someone. We're, We're slaves to something or someone And if you're ever fully going to understand yourself, if you're ever going to find any sweetness in the gospel, any love in your heart toward Jesus, you first have to understand this bad news tonight of this idea that you're a slave to sin. So three things I want to talk about tonight from this passage or thinking about this passage and this idea. Here's the first. Our slavery is real. Second, our our, uh, slavery has layers, is layered. 
And then lastly, our slavery demands a deliverer. Our slavery is real. Our slavery has layers, and it demands a deliverer. Let's first, let's first talk about our slavery is real. So this, the most fascinating thing about this passage is that there are three little keys that are connecting us to Genesis and specifically creation. Uh, the, one, the first key is, we don't get this in the Hebrew text, it, our English translations kind of skip the very first word in the Hebrew if we're reading the Hebrew version of Exodus. It opens with this little word, and. And it immediately connects us to what? It connects us to the book of Genesis. Another way that we know this is the first six words of this are literally the very same words that we find in Genesis 46, 8. And then the third little key that's connecting us to the creation story I'm gonna, that is important for us to, to get is verse 7 and verse 12, where it says they were fruitful and multiplied. If those words sound familiar, it's because that was the creation mandate. Before the fall, God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And so this is important because what's happening is Exodus is showing us that there's been a disruption in creation. That Israel's enslavement in Egypt is a disruption to God's plan and his design for his created people. And what we're seeing is this idea of slavery to sin is a disruption of what we were created to be. It's a breakdown of human flourishing. It means that you and I are not as we should be. It means that you and I are not, uh, the, the order of loving God and loving each other has been disrupted, it's been distorted, it's been twisted. So when Jesus says that we're slaves to sin, he's connecting us to this Exodus story. He's saying we have all been spiritually enslaved by sin. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Another way to say it is, This power called sin has enslaved us in such a way, has imprisoned us in such a cruel way that we're not moving out into the world in love toward God or Lord, uh, love toward neighbor. Here's the way I love that. uh, A lot of this is coming from this book called Leaving Egypt by Chuck DeGrove. Here's the way he says it. He says, are we not all slaves? The Exodus story would answer, yes, we are all slaves. We're slaves to image and appearance to substances and relationships, to compulsive behaviors and abusive systems. We're all ensnared by the Egypts in our lives and the pharaohs that demand our allegiance. As free as we might imagine ourselves, each of us continues to wrestle with the old self, parts of us that have never left the slavery of Egypt for the flourishing we were made for. Or we could say it in the words of Red, at first we hated sin, then we got used to it, then we came to depend on it. And that's part of how our slavery to sin works. Uh, what I always think about is there's this, um, years ago I was watching this special, it was a Lady Gaga special concert special on HBO, and she had sold out Madison Square Garden, which is really hard to do, and the, um, the director or whoever was filming caught her in a moment right as she was going on stage, but before she's back in the green room, and she has this meltdown, and it's fascinating because here she is, this is, she's at her peak when she's doing the monsters thing and it's weird, but weird in the best kind of way. You're into that. I am into that. Um, and they catch her in this moment where she is just weeping. She's about to go on stage and she's weeping. And as they start talking to her, she says this, she said, I just sometimes feel like a loser still. I sometimes still feel like that loser kid in high school who was bullied, who was misunderstood. And she said, I know we've just sold out the garden, but that's what I still feel. And then she says, I have to just tell myself that I'm a superstar. I have to pick myself up, tell myself I'm a superstar, and it's going to be okay. And in that moment, it's funny for me because I think she has what all of us 
at our worst, long for. She has, you know, millions of fans, maybe. She's just, I mean, she's got money, more money than we could dream of. She's got fame. She's got Grammys. And in this moment, you see, but she's still enslaved to something. She's still, I would say she's still enslaved to approval. Approval that says, that lies to us, that if enough people like you, you'll feel loved. In that moment, she's got everything that, that we could long for, and yet she still is enslaved to something. Our slavery is real, and the first question for you and for me is, is what are you enslaved to? Another way to ask it is, what so holds your heart? What so holds your happiness? What so controls you or drives you that's not Jesus? That's not God? What are you enslaved to? First, our slavery is real. We, we can feel it. But second, our slavery is layered. This is where we could ask the question, why didn't the Israelites just free themselves? Why didn't they just organize, fight, and free themselves? And the answer is it's way more complicated than that, right? It's way harder than that. The forces of Egypt were so powerful. They were no doubt exhausted and afraid. They had been tempted, no doubt, to forget God's promises, to forget who they were. So we talked about last week. And part of this is we have to understand about your slavery and my slavery to sin is it's layered. It's complicated. It's huge. It's bigger than we, can, than we know what to do with. And specifically, it's got four, our slavery has four layers to it. Four layers that kind of make it so complicated and hard in our lives. Here, here, here's the first one. The first layer we could simply call objective guilt, right? This means that our sinful words and deeds, they do something, they build something, uh, they add up. The way I like to think about it is thinking about sin as a kind of cosmic debt. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes you hear that word sin a lot, but what is sin? I think one way we talk about sin is saying we are robbing God and one another of glory, honor, and love. And in that sense, we owe something to him and to one another. We have stolen glory and honor and love from God and from one another. And the thing is, if we could see the bill, if we could see the bill of the debt of our sin, if that, if that bill came in the mail, it would crush us. It would bring us to our knees. I always think about this part of this Time in my life, I'm not proud of it. I was a sophomore here at USC, and I decided they used to, in my day, they don't do this anymore because it's illegal, but credit card uh, lenders would come to campus and you could just like sign up for a credit card. And you're like, this is amazing. Mom and dad don't have to know to get, get this credit card. For some reason, I signed up for a Sam's Club card. Uh, and so what I began to do is I would just make a run to Sam's. And I'd never been in a Sam's before, and I was like, you're telling me that I can get, like, this ginormous box of uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch and as many as I want? Yes, please. You're telling me I can get an entire box of Snickers and Blow Pops? Yes. Add it to the cart. Add it to the cart. So I start just going on these spending sprees at Sam's Club. I know. I was, college was a dark time. I was depressed. I was obviously eating a lot. Um, and we just thank God that he sees us through some of those years. So what would happen, though, is I would get the bill in the mail, and what I would do is I would immediately just tear it up. So the bill would come, and I was like, I'm not looking at that. I'm going to tear that up. Another bill would come. Nope, I'm not looking at that. I'm just going to throw that one away. Finally, it gets to be Christmas. I'm like, okay, I've got to deal with this. I take it home. I open it with my mom in my house, and I've racked up, like, it was a solid two grand in debt with all the late fees and lack of payments. You know how that works? And I was like, I don't have two grand. What am I going to do with this? But I was, you know, 
crushed by the debt that I had racked up. And the end of that story was my rich aunt came to my um, salvation and paid the bill for me. And it was a little experience of the gospel. I'm not going to lie to you. But that's part of our sin, part of our, the first layer of series, objective guilt. We have cosmic debt. We have a bill that if we saw it would crush us. The second layer is what we could simply call subjective guilt and shame. Uh, I have a friend who likes to say it's one thing to know that you're forgiven, but it's quite another thing to feel forgiven. A lot of us know Jesus paid, my, Jesus paid it all. We know that Jesus went to the cross. He took care of that debt. He took care of what we owed. He took care of our, our sin in that way. But if we're being honest, we still feel the guilt. We still feel the shame. And part of this, the cruelty of that cycle is as we feel or are crushed by the things that we do or the way that we feel about ourselves and our shame, we end up running back to the very taskmasters that have enslaved us in the first place. And there's a cycle that begins. We call it the guilt-shame cycle. You feel bad about a choice you made. And you know I should run to Jesus, but, but part of your guilt and shame says you can't go to Jesus. Jesus isn't going to forgive you. Jesus is ashamed of you. And so you run to those old taskmasters that are, you have learned to depend on. That's part of how that layer works for us. So first, objective guilt. Second, subject of guilt and shame. And then third, and this one's a little trickier, but we could just call it addictions. Um, some of us are <clears throat> addicted to all kinds of things. I mean, the easy one to talk about is substances. It's not easy in the sense of it can really crush and ruin our lives. But we can be addicted to all kinds of things, some, some of which are seen, some of which are not seen. Um, I'll never forget meeting with a counselor and him saying, how do you know something's an addiction? And here's the way he said it to me. He said, here's how you know something is an addiction in your life is you can stop, but you can't stay stopped. You can stop maybe for short periods of time, maybe for long periods of time, but there's something about it that always draws you back in, always brings you back in. I always think about there's a scene in Monsters Ball, Billy Bob Thornton and Holly Berry. And Holly Berry plays as um, an addict, and she's just lost her son in this horrific car accident. And she's been in this sexual relationship with Billy Bob Thornton, and as she loses her son, literally moments after she runs to Billy Bob's house, and it's the most uncomfortable sex scene that you've ever seen. Because she is just trying to throw herself. She's weeping. She's grieving. But she's throwing himself. She's throwing herself at Billy Bob Thornton. And it's like, you, you know, it's one of those scenes you would never want to watch in a million years with your parents. Because it's so uncomfortable. She's trying to take his clothes off. And he's like not into it. And then finally she, kept, she keeps saying, make me feel good. Make me feel good. Make me feel good. Make me feel good. And I forget watching it and thinking, this is, that's what addiction does to us, right? We run to things and we say in our hearts, make me feel good, make me feel good, make me feel good. And they ensnare us and they enslave us in that way. So objective guilt, subjective guilt and shame, addictions. And then here's the bigger one, the fourth layer, we can just call idols. And here's what I mean by that is I'm going to guess most of us here, a lot of us here would say Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my Lord. But the question for us is what is your functional savior? What is your functional Lord? What do you run to when you're sad? What do you run to when you're depressed? What do you run to when you're anxious? And we know this is how idolatry works, right? We know in our minds it should be Jesus, but the reality of our lives is we run to idols. We run to those things that we feel like give us meaning, give us an identity, make us feel good, make us feel okay with ourselves. It can be anything from a relationship to a substance 
any, it could be all kinds of things, approval, power, control, perfectionism. These are all things that can be idols in our lives. I love the way that Luther, Martin Luther, describes idolatry. He says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Another way of saying it is an idol is anything that when you have it, you feel like you're on top of the world. And when you lose it, you feel like you're absolutely crushed and devastated and life is over. Um, when I was in Statesboro, there was a student. And the way it worked in her life was she had made an idol of this, this boy. And so when we would meet and they were together, she was just like so happy. She's like, we're, we're going to get married. We're going to have babies. And then he would always break up with her. And when I would meet with her, I would meet with her in those seasons. She would just be like a mixture of, she was maybe the angriest student I ever had. I mean, she was scary. Like I'll never forget. We were sitting after a one-on-one in my car and the guy had just broken up with her. And she just like raged for a solid 20 minutes at me and Jesus. And I was like, cool, cool. This is what I signed up for. Welcome to Cavus Ministry. But the way it worked was when they were together, she was on top of the world. And when they were apart, she was crushed, devastated. And why? Because he was an idol. He meant more to her than Jesus. He was more real to her than Jesus. He was more important and valuable to her. He, he gave her more than Jesus in her mind, in her heart. So we have objective guilt, subjective guilt, addictions, idols. Let me say, there's a, how does this all work together? Why is this so complicated? Uh, man, I read this incredible article by one of my favorite sports writers out of Charlotte. His name is Tommy Tomlinson, and he is an obese, severely obese man. And he's, he just came out, he's coming out with this book about his, a lot of it's about his struggle with uh, weight and eating. And he wrote this article in the Atlantic, or maybe the New Yorker, one of the two, last week, uh, called Losing Weight is a Rock Fight. And here's how he says it, because it boils all this down, I think, in a beautiful way. Why it's so complicated, why it's so hard, why we can't free ourselves from it. Here's what he says. He says, eat less and exercise That's what some of you are saying right now, maybe not out loud, but you say it every time you see a fat person downing fried eggs in a diner or overstuffing a bathing suit on the beach or staring out from one of those good Lord what happened to her stories in the gossip magazines. Eat less and exercise. What I want you to understand more than anything else is that telling a fat person eat less and exercise is like telling a boxer don't get hit. You act as if there's not an opponent. Losing weight is a effing rock fight. The enemies come from all sides. The deluge of marketing telling us to eat worse and eat more. The culture that has turned food into one of the last acceptable vices. Our families and friends who want us to share in their pleasure. Our own body chemistry dragging us back to the table out of fear that we'll starve. And listen to what he says. On top of all of that, some of us fight holes in our souls that a boxcar of donuts couldn't fill. My compulsion to eat comes from all those places. I'm almost never hungry in the physical sense, but I'm always craving an emotional high. The kind that comes from making love or being in a crowd of great live music or watching the sun come up over the ocean. And I'm always wanting something to counter the low when I'm anxious about work or arguing with family or depressed for reasons I can't understand. And my question is, he's nailing something. How do you get free from something like that? What I want you to feel is, good luck. Your strategies aren't working. You're, You're trying to strive and free yourselves. I hope you feel that it's not working. That you're still a slave. That those idols still have power over you. That those cruel taskmasters are still winning. And that's the third thing I want you to see is our slavery demands a deliverer. 
This is where we're going next week is God sees us. We looked at that last week. God sees the pain of his people. He sees the pain of the struggle. He sees their slavery to sin. And he he does something. And specifically, he raises up the perfect deliverer for them. He raises up a little baby named Moses, right? You know the story. He raises up Moses. Why is Moses so perfect? Moses is perfect for three reasons. Moses is perfect because he's an Israelite. He knows them. He's one with the people. But he's also close to God. God reveals his glory to him. He is close. He fellowships with God. And then thirdly, he gets Egypt. He's lived in Egypt. And so God raises up this deliverer. But if you know the story at all, Moses is also super flawed. God literally blocks Moses from the promised land because he loses his stuff with the people, God's people, over and over. He blows up in anger, right? He is incredibly, they just try his patience over and over And so we begin to see that Moses is just this little small picture of the deliverer that we need, of the deliverer that God is ultimately going to provide that we know as Jesus, the true and better Moses. Jesus, who is one with us, we call him Emmanuel. He knows us. He has a heart for us. He has a heart like us. Jesus, who is one with God, he's the son of God. He's one with the father. He's not just close with the father. He reveals the face of the father, the glory of the father, the holiness and the love of the father. And then Jesus, who knows what life in a broken and fallen world is and what it's like. And God raises up this deliverer, Jesus, for us who can free us from this slavery. That's the part when Jesus is challenging the Pharisees and he says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Do you feel that? He also says, anyone the Son sets free will be free indeed. So that Paul can write, you are no longer slaves. You belong to Jesus. You still struggle with that. You still struggle with the old self, but you're now a child of God, a son of God through Jesus. Jesus is no stranger to our brokenness. He's no stranger to our sin. He entered into this world to free us from it. And he's better than Moses because he doesn't lose his temper with us. He's better than Moses because he doesn't lose patience with us. You ever thought about that? You ever just taken even 10 minutes and thought about how patient Jesus has been with you? Just 10 minutes to reflect on, I don't pray or not pray, but just think about through your life how patient Jesus has been with you, how gentle he has been with you, how there he has been for you. I'll close with this. Uh, There's a scene in Traffic that I love. It's Michael Douglas, and he's playing. It's fascinating because he's playing this DEA, and he's supposed to head up the campaign for the war on drugs. But in the meantime, his daughter is being just devastated by crack cocaine. And there's a scene where he knows he's gotten suspicious about his daughter that she's using. And there's a scene where she's been gone for days, and then days turn into weeks, and he can't find his daughter, and he's desperate to find his daughter. So he goes knocking on crack houses one after another, and he knocks on this one of my favorite scenes in movie history. He knocks on this one crack house and this huge dealer answers the door. And Michael Douglas busts into the room and he finds his daughter just having laid with this guy, this old businessman. She's strung out. She's high as can be. And in that, in that moment, you feel, what is, that, what is he going to do as that father? And I think you and I think he's going to bust in and he's just going to be like, what are you doing? Get up. Who are you? Get your stuff together. Let's go. And instead, he does the very opposite. He kneels down next to her and he kisses her and then he picks her up in his arms and he takes her home. When I see that, I think that's the deliverer we have in Jesus. He sees all the ways you're enslaved tonight. What are you enslaved to? There's something. It's something. Jesus sees it, but his posture toward you, his move toward you isn't to scold you. 
out of your sons is to love you all the way home, to show you that his grace will always overpower whatever it is that has a hold on your heart right now that you know, as I'm saying this, you know that you need to repent of. You know it is killing your fellowship with God and with fellow believers. You know it, and Jesus knows it. But his plan isn't to shame you or scold you out of it. His plan is to move near you with songs of love and to bring you, to free you. Anyone who the Son frees is free indeed. Let's pray. Jesus, we need that your work in our life in that way. <clears throat> we need you to draw near to us in the places that we find ourselves stuck, imprisoned, and slave tonight. We need you to be the only deliverer. Lord, some of us are still trying. We're trying to do it on our own. Would you free us of that burden, of that slavery, of self-righteousness, of trying to prove ourselves? And would you invite us into the love that you have for us, the power to change us that you have for us, the gospel, the good news of what you have done and are doing on our behalf and in our lives. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. I'll stand and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Thanks so much for coming to RF on a Monday night. Enjoy the game tomorrow. We're going to be there. Go Cox. Go Cox. Yeah. Thanks.